You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Land Legacy Podcast. This is your host, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. And we are looking forward to spending some time with you on another podcast. This is podcast number 27. 27. Lucky number 27. Yeah. And we've got a couple different topics we actually had some questions come in this past week um landowners and hunters from all over cr- yeah pretty much one one guy was from ohio and uh I forget another from missouri up. here yeah good old missouri and uh good old missouri matt you hear that i heard it i like yeah. missouri i'm living here proud of it <laughs> i'm just from virginia which you just, always tend to make fun of which i don't understand but you know what it's fine it's we, not like uh, it's my decision to live there, get born there, but we have we have a. I will start off by saying there's actually a lot of there's a topic coming up that, um, I think people might think that you and I agree on everything. Surely they don't think that because they if you put two <laughs> guys with testosterone pumping, it, you're not always going to agree. But there are certain times where you just you you rub it in the other one's face and you have conversations and debates and. One of the upcoming ones is, I, I guess I'll just say all that to say that we don't always agree. Yeah. but We, uh, have, we have healthy debates. Yes. And, there, and there's things that come up that are like where I'm kind of, I look at you or you look at me like, what? What are you thinking, dude? And uh, one of them is the waterhole situation yeah. that we've kind of debated back and forth. But uh, we're, we agree on the same topic of, of, of this guy's, I guess we agree on the answer to this guy's question. Sure. Um and it's, it's just all healthy, uh, healthy debates and healthy, well, and it makes us better uh, oh, yeah. always. Um, even it, it forces us both to learn and research and figure out the right answer. And, and when we go to a property, we don't always agree right away when we're on site about the layout. And honestly, most of the work after we see something, a property, you and I talk about it on the way home. And then from there, we have the in-depth discussion of, well, maybe we should expand that or, or this road definitely has to go here versus there, um, whatever it is. But we tell the client, hey, we're going to come here. We're going to look at it. And then once we leave, the real work is really beginning mm-hmm. as we, we talk about it and decide and make the maps and really orient ourselves around those features that we're enhancing or adding. And even even if it's just me on the property or you on the property – it's not that you're completely excluded from it. Um, we oftentimes, even if I've never seen the property, you tell me about it, and I look at the map, and we kind of discuss it again. So yeah, that's yeah. A, a huge benefit for us is we're always bouncing ideas off each other. For sure. Um, and so anyway, 
it's an exciting week this week. We're going to have a oh, yeah. special guest, a very good friend of ours. And also, uh, let's go ahead and start answering some of these questions the yeah. guys had uh, this past week. Real quick, before we do that, we want to send out the reminder that all of our content is now going to be found on Nine Finger Chronicles RSS feed. So if you have not yet subscribed to Nine Finger Chronicles on iTunes, be sure to go over there, hit subscribe, because that's where you're going to be finding all of our new, fresh, current uh, podcast starting the September 5th. So next week, you'll be seeing our... So- this is podcast number 27. If you yeah. come back next week here, same location, and listen to podcast 28, you're not going to find us. <laughs> you're going to try. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, the house is there possibly. No, actually, it won't even be there. It'll just be you're going to the house, and it's flat level ground, and it's no longer there. <laughs> yeah. So be sure to convert over there um, this week even. Go ahead and subscribe. Like the Facebook page so you can follow along and see when it's um, going to be released. And we're planning on releasing on Tuesdays over there yep so just keep that in mind for future um that you need to go ahead and get over there and that's where you're going to find us at our new location that's right and we're and, excited and if about you are a, a long time follower of nine finger chronicles and you're just now finding out about land and legacy podcast great to have you glad you came here and checked us out so hopefully you can uh, continue along and hopefully we can help you on your property or your favorite piece of public ground we or can lease doesn't matter yeah Anything hunting or habitat, hopefully we can help you. So, let's get covers into the questions. First question, which one is it, Matt? I'll let That's you pick. Dan Applebaum, this gentleman, um, sent in a question regarding water and how deer consume water, the, the need for live water or water running in a stream, pond, that they can freestanding water, um, and the importance of that on a property. He's got about 280 acres or so, and he has one pond on the property. And he, he believes that it's a, you know, knowing it's a limited resource and, and wants to know how deer access water and if he needs, should, if we would recommend to put out, you've seen folks do the do-it-yourself water holes, the kiddie pools that they um, dig into the ground or the, the cattle troughs. And wanted our um, thinking on those present um, based on his water source on the on the farm. So I think it's important to first, you know, talk about real quickly how deer get the majority of their water. Um, and the majority of their water comes in three forms. First, it could, that's the freestanding water. Then they have preformed water and metabolic water. And preformed water is water that when they consume vegetation they get and extract from that plant. And then the metabolic water is when they're going through the digestion process that the fats, carbs, proteins, they, they extract more liquid water from that process. And that's the majority of the water that they need. They get from that process. Um, of course, we see in times of drought and when, let's say, native forage um, isn't as palatable anymore, that water content is, is less. So you might see them, especially this time of year. This time of year is, is another, not, most people this don't think about This time of year and, a, and the rut whenever yeah. it's a, a dry fall. Yeah, most people don't think of this as a stress period, but it, but it can be. Um, and if, if it's dry, it definitely is. So having that freestanding water, because they're not getting as much from the vegetation, the native vegetation or, or other crops that they're consuming, 
you do need freestanding water. Mm -hmm. But the majority of the time, the majority of the year, deer do not need to drink from a creek or from a pond or from a water trough. They're getting it and receiving that from vegetation that they're eating. And if you're out there feeding supplement, there's not as much preformed water in that food. So you might see deer using a water trough that's in close proximity to that feed more often um, than those who aren't feeding. So to answer the question, would we suggest placing a water trough or, or a kiddie pool close to a hunting location, a stand location? Adam, what's your thoughts? I think so. Um, and, I, and I'll say this, you know, from the whole habitat standpoint, let's say on his 250-some acres, he's got one pond, so one one source of water, and we we see a drought, and that drought falls during hunting season. There's a good chance a deer will leave his property to get water elsewhere. Now, for me, I want to try and provide everything I can for the deer on that property, and so I would... I would try to add more. Just not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't break the bank trying to go and do it. Sure. But I would still try and add some, just in case there is a drought. Um, but then from the other side of that, as an attraction, same thing with a food plot. We're not planting them to feed the whole deer herd. Um, in a lot of cases, they're so small. We've covered that before. But um, if I have an area where I want to make it as attractive as possible, and I have a food plot and a mineral site, a small kiddie pool filled with water would be a great option there as well. Uh, especially if there's a stand site and we we see that we're falling into a drought during the hunting season, during o- the rut. Opening of season. It could be a, yeah. a dynamite spot. So I would. Um, now, if it's if it's May 15th, I wouldn't even waste my time, most likely, sure. unless there is a drought. But that time of the year, there's so much green, grow, gr- green growth that I wouldn't worry about it. But during the hunting season, if there's a drought, yeah, I would probably think about it. Yeah, and I think, you know, you always have to balance, you know, time and... and, and uh, Prioritize. Exactly. If if that's worth the bang, if, you know, can you, can you get there and add water easily? You got to tote water, you got to have water hoses, this and that, and, and be able to um, access that place easily without doing disturbance. So weigh out all those factors and know that there are, you know, September, late August can be a stress period if it's dry, and... Uh, rut is a good time to have live water, um, those water troughs available. So if, if those stand sites are accessible and are good during those times of the year, I would consider adding water. If you find yourself in those situations where the water is a limited resource on your property. Yeah. Let's move on to the yeah, next question. Hope, hopefully that answers your question there, Dan. Next one. Big next shout one. out to Charlie. Charlie from Ohio. Hope you're doing he well. He sent bud. us an email. What was that? Yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. Yesterday, and, and he actually asked uh, a question, and then he said he, he recommended us giving him a shout out. So here's your shout out, Charlie. <laughs> Thanks for following along, buddy, and uh, hopefully we can answer your question right here. So his question, um, he had heard us talking about uh, early season hunting techniques and kind of do's and don'ts, and, and when you go into a stand and when you don't, when you hunt, and you know h- how much. Um, gas can you put down on the on the beginning of the season? How how uh, aggressive can you be? And and right now Charlie is facing a situation where he only has mornings to be able to hunt the early season. It doesn't have a buck pattern, and he doesn't know if it's worth his time or if he should go in and hunt mornings, based on the fact that he doesn't want to ruin the area. 
and and potentially damage those stand sites and putting pressure on deer um, because he knows he's going to have more time to hunt during later in the season. I think it's a great question. You know, everyone's anticipating season and wants to get out, but really, in his situation, should he be getting out and hunting? Here's- well, my first question is: What are your goals? What do you? What do you? Are you only looking at harvesting a mature buck? If that's the case, then I'm going to play, and I don't have one on pattern, and I don't really have them on camera. Then I'm not going to hunt very aggressive at all. Um, but if there's a, if, and, and by doing that. I'm setting my property up for basically being un, and there's no pressure on that property. So, which is going to be attractive as soon as more people start entering the woods. Yes, and maybe your neighbors aren't following those same rules. Oh, deer season's here, we're going hunting, mm-hmm. and they push that buck off their property over on yours, and you're not hunting it very aggressive. And he's like, "Boy, that buck's thinking this is a safe zone right here." Yep. There's nobody intruding. There's no predators. I'm going to hang out here for a while. And then once you get him on your cameras, then you can go after him. P- still playing the wind and the humidity and every and all the variables correctly. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great a great suggestion. I'm going to throw a, a caveat out there. Now, let's say, let's say, Charlie, you've got great historical data information on a buck's pattern from, you know, years prior, two and three years prior prior and he's hitting this one area um during the early season pretty regularly and he hasn't done it yet but you feel confident he's going to do it again the same resources there it might be a white oak tree that's loaded um and you want to you want to get in there and hunt maybe you should maybe you should back out of the area hang a stand a little further where you can observe and then when you know it's in there acorns are dropping and raining then you slide in and hunt um, don't bust in all the way to the best area because you might not know exactly where he's coming from, all the details that need to be ironed out before you go in. Observe from the morning, a little further back, and then dive in when the time is right. And um, for me, you know, you think about stands we have. We have our, okay, these stands are for the rut and these stands are for early season. A lot less intrusive, almost observation during the early season mm-hmm. that we can still – so. We, we need to shoot a bunch of does, or we need to shoot does on our properties. So we're going to try and shoot those deer, those does, in areas that we're not intruding as much as we're not right. going into our right. best stands. And that's a always a good approach for any property is t- to say, okay, that's an area that I'm intruding a little bit too much, or I'm intru- I'm way more aggressive than I than than my typical stand. So I'm going to stay out of there till it's perfect timing. Yeah, um, and and that's something to keep in mind when you're facing this obstacle that Charlie has. So, Charlie, I hope that answers your question. I think this is a great segue into our guest that we're going to have on today and talking about different properties when they when they really turn on and what that means for us as managers. And I'll explain that a little bit more, but um, you want to go ahead and get, uh, get him I'm, on the phone? Sure. I'll, I'll go ahead and get him on the phone, and then we'll do a uh, an introduction. So uh, yeah, go ahead. So if you're if you're sitting back and listening, wonder what wonder what they're gonna talk about today. I want everyone to really consider and think about their hunting observations from years past on your property. What that season looks like from day one all the way to the close of season and how your season progresses, what you're seeing, how you're seeing deer use the property, when you're not seeing deer use the property. And then what we're going to talk about is is 
allowing those observations to then guide your management strategy during the off season when it's not hunting season based on your observations what are you doing to improve your property to maybe fill in the gaps that aren't as good and as we get our guests on the phone we've got he's got a lot of a lot of information that he's used over the years and observations that he's going to share that has allowed him to say okay I didn't have a good early season. This is what that property is missing. The neighboring property is a little bit better, so I need to improve it in this manner. And um, so, you want to get him on the line or keep talking? I want to get him on the line, but we got to lay the basis. So, get your minds thinking about your property and your hunting season observations. Mr. Seth Harker, how are you doing? Good. How are you guys? Oh, we're doing all right. Hey, hey, man, I just want to let you know it's good, it's good. 16 days till deer season. Oh, yeah, buddy. I'm ready. I hope you guys are, too. I've, I've just been sitting here dreaming about it today, actually. I hear you there. Now, Seth, I haven't even given an introduction, really, to you. We just went ahead and kind of introduced that you have several different properties, but I'll start off and tell the audience that you and I we had a mutual friend probably six years ago that kind of bounced between both of us and said hey I think you guys would really get along and uh, I think the first time minus seeing you in a restaurant a year before but the first time you and I ever hung out was probably one of the top three best fishing trips I've ever been on and you know friendships are bonded. Uh, that's a great start to a friendship uh, when you we, when you can catch that many fish and have that much fun together. So that was like six years ago, sure. I think. And uh, we've spent sure. a lot of time in the tree stand together since then and a lot of time chasing turkeys since then. So we built up quite the friendship over the years and have spent a lot of time chasing and, and having a lot of just good heart-to-heart talks about conservation and and passing on the torch and getting kids involved and you've got a young son that actually we're going to be hunting with uh this fall i think you said that he's i think you told me on the phone last night that he's getting dialed in and uh he it's his first year with a compound correct yeah it's his first year with a compound he's pulling 41 pounds which the legal limit's 40 so he is getting dialed in we've been shooting out of a stand and he is ready for this fall for sure love to hear it i I can't wait to to see that happen i've watched your videos with trace over the years and actually i was i there i think i filmed the first ever uh turkey hunt of his right when he shot that jake oh yeah that's what i thought yeah you did and yeah (laughs) that was (laughs) that was awesome he should have got some of those big toms but uh he kind of he kind of froze up on us. That was that was an awesome hunt, though. He was just tickled to get one. For sure, for sure. Well, that's awesome. Now, so just to dive in now and start talking about our our subject for this week's podcast, you've got three properties that you manage, and right over over time, you've noticed different things uh, about those properties. And I'm going to hand it over to Matt sure. to dive in for the first first uh, question for you. So just like Adam was talking about, you've, you've got 
three different properties, Seth, and, and they vary from size and proximity to one another. Um, and, and we've had long talks about the, the different things that you've seen over the years and the different properties and how deer utilize them throughout a season and, and how deer right. don't utilize them in other portions of a season. And then from there, that's kind of guided you and told you um, as a great hunter and land manager what the property was lacking and what the neighborhood provided that your property didn't. And then from there, during the off-season, you've worked um, a lot tirelessly on trying to improve those properties and where they're um, basically insufficient. And I think that's a great topic for everyone to be able to listen to. And, and we're just going to open up and talk about the different properties and things that you've done on them and then why you've done them, what you saw over the years that's guided your, you through them. So I know your largest property, five. 530 acres um right you've done a lot a lot of work on that one and really you, you feel like that one is i'm not gonna say maxed out necessarily but you feel like very comfortable um in all the work you've done and then how the deer herd has responded on that property so why don't you just kind of recap that property and what you saw over the years and some of the work that you've done we're just gonna we're just gonna open it up okay sounds good yeah, that is uh, a phenomenal property for sure and uh, has been a lot of work put into it. Um, you know, we have done uh, TSIs in there. We've done savannas in there. Uh, we've been actively burning, um, which we haven't done in the last, I don't know, three years or so. We need to get caught up on that. Um, pine plantation, um, lots of food plots, lots of food plots. Um you name it, screening. We've actually got some pine screening that separates uh, some areas from the road um, where people can't see in and just always just uh, just striving to make better habitat. And, I mean, it's, it's literally showing. I mean, our age structure with our deer is just, it's unbelievable there. And, and our deer numbers, the habitat's so good, um, you know, we really have to keep our deer numbers in check. Um, in fact, we harvested... Um, off that particular farm uh, two years ago we actually harvested 22 does um off of that that one piece of property okay um, which uh is pretty significant i thought for sure Um, especially here in the ozark mountains i've got a question for you seth just so we can kind of paint a picture here it's 530 acres Mm -hmm. just out of top of your head what do you think the percentage is of timber on that piece uh that piece you know you're going to be you're going to be eighty percent. Um, you, if you're counting pine plantations, uh, if you're counting cover, um, if you're taking away the pine plantations and everything, you're probably getting closer to sixty-five, uh, sixty to sixty-five percent timber, and then the rest of it would be pine plantation and food plot. Right, and and what at, at what stage? We'll we'll just dive into those pine plantations, and what caused you to say, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna reseed some of these areas and put them in a pine plantation, and then correct me if I'm wrong, but some of those you you were able to enroll in a government program to to offset costs. Is that correct? Right, and that that was the that was the driving force with that. Um, naturally, thermal bedding we like that, you know, and deer love that. They love. They love greens to go into in the winter, and uh, 
that's pretty obvious. We find lots of sheds in those. Um, and the, the uh, programs that we could enroll in was the main driving force for that mm-hmm. and knowing that uh, it was going to help our help our wildlife. And, you know, the deer stay around that, and they love to chase does in it. They love to pin does in it. Um, you know, we hunt around them. And used to when they were young, um, you could see down the rows, and, and, I mean, they would literally, it was just, a parade of bucks chasing does through them. Now they, they're so tall, which we need to send some of them mm-hmm. um, to proceed with the program. But but they love it. They stay in there, and it is literally a sanctuary. Um, you know, and one thing I've noticed when, when our November gun season rolls around here on this particular uh, farm we have, man, all the deer come, come to me. Um, they come, that's where they seek refuge, whether it's the does dragging the bucks in mm-hmm. or vice versa. But, I mean, it is literally a sanctuary, uh, the pine plantation. And then we've also got a clear cut that's kind of uh, in between some of our pine pine plantations. It's about eight years old now. Mm-hmm. And we've got a sanctuary. Um, so instead of just putting one sanctuary in the middle of the property, we have one big one in the middle, um, and then we have some of these other pine plantations on the fringes, um, and they work as sanctuaries as of now. I mean, they're just thick, nasty pine plantations, hard to hunt, but they are bedrooms for the deer, and, and the deer love it, you know. How many total acres, if you add up those areas that you're calling sanctuaries and pine plantations, would you say over 50% well, of, of that farm is is considered a sanctuary? I would say that's exactly right. Um, in fact, it was very intimidating uh, to hunt, um, you know, and especially as these are getting mature, you know, you've got to kind of think outside the box because, you know, a lot of people come in there and, I mean, it's like the Texas brush country. When you look at a pine plantation, you know, you're like, how do you get in there? You can't hang a stand in there. How are you planning on hunting in there? So we have to implement different uh, strategies and for me, my food plots are probably uh, one of those strategies as well as these PSIs we're doing. Um, you know, for example, one of the main pine plantations we call uh, buck rub. Um, and that's because How every creative. pine throughout the plantation. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it, every one of them is just rubbed. I mean, you'd think they were in there wanting to log them. But anyways, we did a PSI next to this particular uh plantation and i tell you what it's really opened it up it's made a break line so we have we have one landscape of just heavy thick cover pine plantation and then on the other one we've opened it up with the psi now these deer especially during the rut those does they're trying to pin up in the pine plantation and the bucks are trying to get them out you know where they can run them in the more open psi uh the tops are kind of you know, they're kind of decaying and stuff, but it's a brake line through there, and, and they're traveling that, that edge cover, and it's awesome during the rut. And I'm I, a, great, a great rifle stand for it. Right, and I think you, you kind of hit the, the nail on the head there, and, and as you're talking more about the property and talking about percentages that are open versus sanctuary and TSI and pine plantations and screens. You know, I hope everyone's kind of getting the idea of there's a lot of edge to this property on 530 acres, even though the majority of it is timber and still having those edges creates bottlenecks and creates areas that deer would prefer to walk. And then as 
on top of that, you have food plots areas that, and I know the food plots that have been there, are varying sizes. So you have a lot of edge. You have defined areas for deer to bed and feel comfortable. Then you have edges that they're going to prefer to walk to and from small kill plots and then work their way out to destination food plots. So exactly. through all the work, you've basically given a deer everything that they could really possibly want when it comes to escape cover, bedding cover, um, travel corridors, and food and destination food plots. So for, even though for, it's timber, sure. you've got the edge and have maintained those and continue to maintain those um, edges, and that's where you're, you're keying in to hunt them at. Is that correct? Yeah, definitely. That's, that's where we're keying in. And you mentioned uh, destination food plot, and that's another thing that makes, uh, I believe, that farm so unique. You know, we've got, uh, which we're just converting another grass field, but we're roughly in the center of that property, more or less the center, we're, ha- we're going to have 20, uh, 25, 27 acre uh, destination food plot. I mean, we can put whatever we, we so desire in there, but um, that's a key. Everything's headed to that. I mean, it's obvious on the camera. So we've got all these small little kill plots, you know, out beyond like spokes off of a wheel from this destination food plot. You know, this is where I get pictures of the mature deer in the daylight this destination food plot that we have i mean from north south east and west uh, i get them you know mature deer in the daylight and then the nighttime that's when they show up to the big field so it really helps on uh if you will pattern these and, and know which deer to hunt where i mean it, it works just like spokes on a wheel this particular property it's a great property to kill deer on for sure and and just pattern deer and Actually, that's taken several years to learn it, but but it, but it is just a phenomenal property to learn and, and have the opportunity to hunt. Sure, uh, I out of the, your properties, that's probably my favorite. Um, not because of the um, the size of it, but just the overall habitat and the amount of fragmented landscape with everything's broke up and there's different there's different things throughout the property and there's really not many acres that aren't managed. Um, and before right. we kind of talk a, a little bit, we get off that, but from a, from an income standpoint, that's one of the biggest reasons why, as you talked earlier, you planted pines was to help offset costs. But that's another reason why mm-hmm. you do such a, a, a huge amount of TSI is to provide income and income in timber value. Is that correct? Yep, for sure. Um, you know, in RCS here where we're at in Missouri, they're, they've got several programs they offer, um. You know, you can do native grasses, um, TSIs, and, and we've definitely uh, taken advantage of some of those. And, and it helps offset the cost um, for a recreational property. For sure. Now, at one point, you had, you had planted the crops to be leased out. Has that changed over time, or are you still, do you still harvest some of those crops to provide income? Uh, we don't do that anymore, and actually... Um, you guys know farming's you know it's it's up and it's down and right now in our area as far as that goes it's down the dairy farmers that were uh, utilizing the corn silage and soybean silage and things like that that we were selling the demand went down for that and is no longer uh, uh, no longer available um, we're actually exploring um, what I did this year we've got 
a little bit of that property that runs along the highway. So this year what I did, I did Sudan grass screens, um, and I've got some little hidey hole food plots tucked in that Sudan grass. But what we're planning on doing, uh, we're checking into some of the programs to plant blue stem um, or different tall uh, native grasses for screening, and then we'll still keep food plots in those. And, you know, we'll be making a little income from them and uh, as well as have a nice screen food plot from the highway so it'll be the best of both worlds. Perfect. Now, when you look at this property, how's the access? The the access is what makes this property uh, and a lot of your properties successful, as with everybody's properties that's that's got much a high success rate. So what's the access like for your 530-acre farm? It's awesome. Um, the road network on it um, is absolutely awesome. There, you can get to every point, every timber stand, every pine plantation, um, every food plot. Well, I shouldn't say every food plot. We've got some that we have a little trouble with creek washing. But for the most part, our access um, is awesome. What's unique about it, all these roads generally circle back to another road which is what, and besides the spur roads that go straight to a point, yeah. Um, naturally they can't circle back. But what that allows me to do um, is approach it from different winds, whether it be vehicle or whether it be on foot. Um, you know, it, it allows me so much more access to hunt. You know, let's say, for example, we've got timber stand eight, which we call food plot eight. Um, you know, I can approach that from the north or the south um and i can literally circle a long ways back to the north or a long ways back to the south so if i think the deer are bedded on this side of the ridge or that side versus having to work a big walk a big circle you know i can park and and go around and you know access that with a lot less effort and if you guys know me i like to park close to my stands and with a lot less effort unless I'm hunting public ground, then it just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, the reason I asked that is because I remember the first couple times I went to your property, we rode around on the buggy. I almost got lost because there were so many roads winding through that property. It was like, <laughs> I have no idea where we're at right now. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's really handy. I mean, it really is to access those stands for different wind currents um, and, and just get in there and hunt it. It's really unique, and that that road system is just on any property, like you mentioned earlier, just very very important, I think, for for any property. Yeah, that that's one thing we are always trying to con- convince and and talk to people about and share about is is access to stands and just even to do simple management strategies and some putting in food plots. It makes it so much easier, um, save so much time by having a great road system developed. Now, Seth. You and I talked recently. <clears throat> excuse me. Talked recently about um, some deer that were showing up on camera, and in particular, you have another property that's close by, um, the 360. That mm-hmm. you've got some great deer in the area. You know they're around there, but they haven't actually started using your property, and specifically that property um, on the southern end. So, talk to us a little bit about why you don't think they're there yet, when you think they're going to show up, and why you think they're going to show up. Um, then, we'll, then we'll talk about strategy of how, you've, how you're going to hunt them 
um, based on your management. So basically just when, when, are, when are these big deer coming? Okay, these, these deer generally, um, and as you know, and we've been friends for quite some time, um, so we've had a long time to kind of monitor this property and get the hang of it. Um, these deer do not show up, you know, until fall. Um, the leaves start to drop, things like that. Then my big deer start moving moving on to this farm. And I mean, it's like clockwork. It's, I mean, it's like, bam, they are there. And one day the trail cameras, they just going to light up. Um, mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that, too, they do stay all the way through uh, winter. When they show up, they're there throughout the winter. Uh, they disperse back out, spring green up. Um, mm-hmm. That's just how that farm has always has always been. Um, one thing that's important to keep in mind about that property, we have not done a lot of timber work on that property. We, we are right now, actually. Awesome. Um, we're doing... We're doing a thinning on that property, so it's going to be something that we'll be able to monitor. Um, you know, we've kind of put all of our eggs over on the the five the five thirty, um, and it's pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, but this farm here, we haven't done uh, lots of timber work. We haven't done lots of burns. Um, another thing is too, um, our food plot acres they're they're pretty limited over there. Right. Um, we're dozing another food plot in right now as well. Um, the does are always there, um, and, and and I suspect that's what the change is to bring the, to bring the big boys in. But you know, I'll keep the same deer. I mean, the same deer. I'll, I'll actually, you know, there's a deer that we call uh, we call him Lucky because my son missed him last year. I've known him for a couple of years. He'll be back in a month. I mean, I will almost guarantee, unless he's died of unnatural causes in the next three weeks. Uh, three to four weeks, he will be back. I mean, and him with a handful of others, that they will show up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, now, talk to us a little bit about why you suspect. You, you mentioned the, the does. They're there consistently. What are the other factors that you think influence them coming to that property during the fall? If they're, you know, what are the neighbors like? What are the neighboring properties like? And I think that's an important thing for everyone to, to think about. On their property, what do the neighboring properties have that you don't have? Okay, so right now the neighbors we've got a big uh, we've got a big dairy operation. Um, it would be just back to the east, and um, they grow alfalfa, they grow wheat, um, they grow several other crops for the dairy cattle. Um, actually, they're chopping that. Sometimes they graze it, you know, and they have a little bit of cover around there. And, uh, you know, they own the deer right now. Those deer that they, uh, that will show up on this property here in the next three or four weeks are there right now. Um, and I'm, I'm good friends with them. They're good neighbors. And, and, you know, I talked with them and, and I know that the deer are there. What happens is in the fall, um, you know, they turn their cattle in and they let their cattle graze the alfalfa, uh, where they do their last cutting. Uh, the leaves fall off, the cattle get to go in the timber, they eat the acorn, um, all the cover, all the food um, that these deer once had right here through the spring and the summer months now are being utilized solely by the farmer. Um, he's literally taken everything that made the deer feel comfortable. And you guys know that what happens when cattle 
are let into the woods uh, throughout the year. I mean, they eat bye bye cover. eat all the native forage. I mean, you can go through where cattle have been, and it's a nice open open landscape, and that's just how it is. I mean, you can see on the our fence line. You look on mine, it looks like I mean, it's brushy. There's native browse forage all through the landscape. You look on theirs, it's nice and open. I mean, you could shoot a deer, what timber they have. I could shoot a deer 150 yards through the timber. Um, and then everything that they had cover-wise through the summer, now the cows are in, stomping down, eating, eating acorns. And I suspect that's why. I've got what they need for those months. For sure. Um, you know what you're describing right now, Seth, sounds a lot like where my family farm was when I was a teenager. Cows could get in the timber um, year-round. There wasn't many deer. We didn't have many deer on camera, even in the summer or in the fall. Um, we'd had a few pass through looking for receptive does, and then they would be gone. Um, but then as we started fencing the cows out of the woods, we started seeing a few more deer. Mm -hmm. um, right. During during the winter, during the fall, during hunting season, uh, but they, we still weren't having them during the summer months. And it was like, what in the world? What? What what do we got to do? And we started doing TSI work and opening up that canopy and letting uh -huh. early succession come back. And that's when we started seeing more and more deer, mature deer, spending the summer on our property. Yeah, and that's that's. I mean, we've watched that on the the five thirty track. It's it's pretty unbelievable what it what it accomplishes. And and I know you guys have mentioned a lot in our uh, in past uh, conversations how it's not just about food plots, it's about all this other management that we can do. And, man, a TSI, in my opinion, is one of the greatest uh, food plots a, a deer manager can have. And, I mean, it's it's pretty obvious the, the benefits, as you're describing there, um, th that it accomplishes for sure. Yeah, I, I think you, you uh, again, hit the nail on the head. It it's, it's goes beyond the food plots because – you know, as you experience on this other property, you have great food plots. It's limited on a number of acres, but you're expanding that and, and doing other other work. And you're you're going to now see, based on your knowledge from the 530, this 360 property begin that transformation of of now having bachelor groups spend the summer there because you know you're providing what it is that they um, prefer and what they need, and you're going to see that transition because of the work that you're going to be doing. So, right now, now you know the deer are coming. The bucks are coming. How are you going to be hunting them this season on that property? Okay, so th this is obviously this is a rut, a pretty well rut related farm uh, or late season because naturally that's when they're there. So um, we're going to be hunting bottlenecks. Um, we've got a, we've got saddles over there. We're going to be hunting. Um, and we've got food plots, uh, very few food plots for late season that we're going to be hunting. That's, that's how we particularly hunt that. What's interesting about it, um, I've got one four-acre food plot in the middle. And I know people are like, man, that's a, that's a good-sized food plot. I've got an acre food plot. Mm -hmm. um, what's interesting about that four-acre food plot, we were talking about these cattle getting to utilize all the available food up on the, the outskirts of this property. That four-acre food plot, and Adam's hunted there with me some, that four-acre food plot 
you can see on that one food plot, I think I've seen upwards around over 50 deer in a set. Mm. Um, I think that tells us a lot about the landscape. Sure. Um, there's not a, there's not a lot of available food around that, uh, around that area. Um, it's something we're missing. Um, you know, and that's something, uh, that we're going to, that we're going to try to uh, remedy here in the next few years. But as far as hunting goes, you know, we're going to hunt those food plots when they show up. If they show up within the next two or three weeks, we're going to hunt these early season food plots. They're planted. They're greening up. Um, I've got these in travel corridors. Um, You know, they're just hidey hole little food plots. They've been great in the past, so we're going to hunt those early. And then this farm, as far as topography goes, um, you know, it's got tons of topography on it. Uh, we've got saddles, we've got benches, um, it's all wooded. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got converging hubs, you know, where points all lead up to a central location. Um, and one thing we have on this, there is one of the best well-known, uh, bedding areas, um, that I have on any of the farms. And the reason is, is because it's so defined. Um, it is a place and as you guys well know, in southern Missouri, it's really hard to find a just a bedding area. It's not like Iowa or, or some of the other uh, northern states where you're like, okay, they're bedding in this cedar thicket or here. You know, there's so many points. There's so much topography. Sometimes it's hard to pinpoint. This particular property, for whatever reason, just from historical data, the big boys, uh, you know, there's about a 30-acre ridge right there. And they bed there, and they stay there from November, the first two weeks of November. They're going to be there. They're going to be cruising the downwind side of it, checking for does. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of my favorite places, favorite places to hunt in November is the downwind side of that bedding area. Yeah. My, you got me excited already for November, and we haven't even gotten all the <laughs> way to September yet. <laughs> Man, buddy, I, I've been having trouble sleeping at night. <laughs> so I, I, I am ready. I am ready. So Seth, you've got another another smaller property, and uh-huh. what does what does that season look like? What does the season look like on that property for you? When are the when are the times that you're hunting that one, and when are the times that you're staying out of that property? Okay, that farm, and you know we we have we have just rode this farm and keep thinking that okay, it's going to get better, it's going to get better. This farm lays it lays really um, slender in in its footprint, if mm-hmm. you will. It, it lays long and slender. Um, we've got a great vineyard that's uh, back to the north. We've got cattle country as normal. Uh, all around the other three sides it's just cattle country beef cattle and uh, they go to everything down um oh and we've just now added a 150 acre uh goat farm so it's going to be oh, interesting wow. to see what goes on with this uh, this is really going to change it's all high electric fences they huh. went in and they literally destroyed the timber um i mean nothing i mean it's just a clear cut wow. um they destroyed the timber, and they're going to electric fence it and put it, fill it with goats. I mean, like I think he said, five or six hundred goats. Man, uh, yeah. So we're uh, we're excited to see. 
But uh, back to that property, it's real interesting. Um, the deer there, and we've always wished it was different. Um, the deer there, they stay there in the summer. They're there right now. And they start leaving as right as September 15th. They really start kind of trickling out. However, there was one year um, that they stayed around, and, and as this whole conversation, part of it's been is it was there was food involved. Yep. That year was a bumper white oak crop. Uh-huh. And that particular farm, it had, you know, those 10, 11-inch white oaks in there. It needs some timber work, which is happening right now there, too. Right. Um, for whatever reason, that particular, uh, those white oaks in there, they were just, they were just slamming with acorns, and that is the only year to date uh, that there has been mature whitetail stay on that farm um, throughout a season. Um, they're going to leave uh, for whatever reason. You know, the habitat's just not just not up to par uh, to keep those deer on there um, past the rut. They'll cruise in and out during the rut. It's kind of a trickle effect. Right. Um, they just don't stay on there. Um, we have added, which we're anxious to see what happens. We added a 15 acre pine plantation. It's only about three to four foot tall right now. Yeah. Very excited to see what uh, goes on with this pine plantation. Um, as it gets a little old or older, I mean, is this going to keep the deer on through the winter? You know, is it going to be that thermal bedding cover? Um, we did add another food plot. Um, we're doing the timber work. I mean, I'm excited to see what's going to happen um, in the future years because, you know, it, that that farm is just, uh, you know, you better get them early. Um, you, you may have a crack during the rut. Um, and it's a wild card. That's what's interesting about it. Right. The cameras that we have, what's happening is you'll have a, you may have a big giant buck cruise in there uh, November. And you will never see that deer again. And, you know, I suspect he's just in there to breed a few local does that, that stay there and don't don't move out, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, coming from a neighboring property. But he doesn't make it his home. He's in. He's out. I mean, you may get lucky during the rut, but, you know, from a land manager like you and Adam and myself, you know, we want those deer to stay on, or I do, all four seasons particularly that's that's my goal anyway sure sure you you know the way you manage deer and how you provide security on a place and uh you want to provide that for all the local deer and by improving it for all four seasons you can ensure that there is safety for them and uh but they still need the right habitat which is which is the combination security and the right habitat that is going to make them do that and you've seen that throughout other properties that you've managed and um done throughout the years I, th- I think you hit on another really important, well, two important things. Certainly one of them was looking outside of your property borders and looking to see how the habitat is changing outside and around you to then influence your decisions as well. Um, Adam and I always kind of use the phrase, you know, habitat management is, is a lifelong process, and that's a perfect example right. of it. Just because you're not doing anything or your habitat is in good shape, doesn't mean it's not changing in a, in a deer's entire home range or the neighboring property. It's almost like the phrase, if you're not going forward, you're going backwards. Yeah, exactly. And if, you're, right. if you look at your farm and you say, okay, it's perfect, 
and so you decide to sit on your hump uh, for the next two years, it's actually declining. You're not doing prescribed fire. Right. You're not doing timber stand improvement. Whatever it is, you're not planting food plots. You're not managing your old fields. You're actually, it's it's getting worse. So it's a constant management. For sure. And, right. And by understanding what's going on in your whole neighborhood, you're able then to make the best decision. Okay, well, this neighbor over here on my, my east side, he just clear cut it. He's going to have goats. Deer aren't going to be there. I need to improve my habitat because <laughs> I'm, get, I'm getting those deer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one interesting uh, thing I, I might add, um, you know, a lot of those summer deer that are on the uh, 160, that smaller track, you know, that we're talking about that's lacking a few things. Yeah. What's interesting about that, you know, we've talked about the 530. You guys all know how this lays and works. It, it just gave us a great, uh, a great example of different farms and what they're lacking, what they have. But those deer, a lot of times that are there in the summer – they move, they transition to the 530, and they spend the rest of the time right there. They'll spend the rest of the fall, will spend the rest of the winter, and I'll pick their sheds up. Mm-hmm. Um, E.T., you know, I killed E.T. last year, just a, a beautiful buck, um, and E.T. summered on the 160 for three years straight. Wow. That's where he summered. I've got lush food plots in there. You know, I've got, you know, a guy may think, what more can I do? I've got food pots, we've got timber, you know, and we're talking about everything that we can do with the PSIs and things like that. But that buck, every year, about when the leaves start to drop, he transitioned to the 530 where he has everything. He has those PSIs uh, where, where all that browse is coming up. You know, he's got these savannas we made. He's got all the cover. And, you know, that deer keyed in on that, and that is the place that he spent uh, the rest of the fall and then summer he would go back you know where he could get in those big farmer fields where they have clover and and where the cattle can't keep up with all of it and uh, just kind of two examples of landscapes so in my mind i'm thinking you know what we need to do tsis on the 160 we need to add pine plantation we need to do this and that to mm-hmm. keep those deer and maybe even draw deer maybe just like the 530 does from a whole different home range uh, from someone else's farm. I mean, that, that's not keeping up on all these practices like you guys are trying to teach and, and, and tell us about, you know. That's right. just important stuff for our farms. And, and I think it's important to note that this 160 that you're talking about and, and ET's movement from summer to the 530 when when the leaves dropped and, and things changed and the 530 became the more preferred property for deer in the area, those properties don't touch. those. You have landowners, other landowners, in between those properties. And I think for someone out there, you know, who's thinking, okay, you know, I've seen deer disappear. Where do they go? They, they seek the area with the best habitat. And that's one – it's encouraging and then discouraging, too, in, in, in the same aspect that – if you're not doing your habitat work and you're losing deer, that means someone is is improving theirs and has better habitat than you. But if you're keeping up and have some of the best habitat in the area and doing the work and putting in the sweat equity, you can influence and um, change the way deer use their home range. And I think that's a great example um, of that. Definitely. And, and, you know, you guys I know are doing that on your – Adam's family farm and your farm and and 
you know, the lease out there that you guys have. And, you know, you guys are, I think, are already seeing this summer what the benefits. Um, I don't think I've ever seen you guys have this many shooters or mature deer in southern Missouri. Mm-hmm. I, I may be wrong, but, um, you know, you guys have a list of them, and I think it's due to a lot of the improvements uh, that you guys are already doing. And people are afraid of that chainsaw, man. We're doing a, a big... Uh, we're we're doing a big TSI right now, and I'm telling you right now, the deer are following that chainsaw around right now. I mean, I was down there the other day, and you know the deer have been all over it, and we're working right beside it. Oh yeah, um, you know they're they're following that. We noticed that. Uh, I was just down at the logging operation a few days ago, and I walked up through it, and I mean they had just shut off the machines and went home for the day, and I went back to the where they were the day before, and there was deer tracks all over it. And, it, and he said, no, nah, in the morning, so when they get there and start cutting and firing up the machines, it's it's kind of like they have to push the cows out of the pasture, but they're kind of shooing the deer out of the way because it's like, okay, we're back. Wait till wait till we leave yeah. again. It, it, it is an awesome, awesome tool that, that I believe is beneficial. And, man, if everybody starts doing it, we're going to have – we're going to have a lot of deer, I can tell you that, because uh, they just thrive. They just thrive. For sure. And and good quality deer, too. And I think, you know, oh, as you talked yeah. about, you know, how deer are moving from property to property, if people are getting their neighbors involved and they're influencing more and more acres, that's just a huge benefit to everyone there um, in their surrounding area, their neighborhood. Um, branch out and, and encourage neighbors to get involved and work together because the impact can be very, very big, and you're, you're a perfect example of that. Right, and, you know, our neighbors are getting more interested as they're seeing. You know, at first, you know, we're doing all this managing, and we've been managing now for, I believe, we're on our ninth year um, on all three of these farms. We're on our ninth year. And, you know, at, at first, year three and four, you know, I mean, we could start seeing uh, – we start seeing some changes year three and year four one big change that we could see is all the neighbors were hunting our fence line <laughs> um because we we were literally owning the deer and i mean they would tell me and and you know we're hunting the fence line and so on and so forth now they're understanding that you know you can't just kill the good deer hunting the fence line and they're asking questions and they're wanting to know how to better keep those deer on their own properties and manage them and and uh, you know just grow quality deer and and, you know if they want to shoot a three and a half year old or a two and a half i don't care you know i don't own the deer uh, and i'll congratulate them for doing that but uh i'm all about you know growing these deer and making the habitat better and they're getting interested in that and that's that's what's exciting to me about that for sure uh you know we're thinking about that one of the biggest motivators on getting neighbors or family members on board is showing them pictures of big deer and saying this is what happens when you manage and i i just think of like you show somebody a a scrub buck and you say we need to do this and it's kind of like oh whatever but like the buck you shot oh man was that four years ago stickers um right i actually four years ago i showed up and took a lot of the hero pictures of that and helped drag him out now what did he gross 180 (laughs) something well, he had the part of his main beam broke off, broke off, and was missing a G5, and like that, he grossed 183. Um, 
Yeah. You know, if you added what he what he didn't have, he might have been 190. But uh, he was a great Southern Missouri deer either way. For sure. And, you know, you, you talk about all the habitat work you do and all the timber management and the prescribed fire and stuff. And they can say, okay, yeah, that's great. But then you show them a picture of, like, of stickers and it's like, whoa, yeah, we don't grow that on our place. So maybe I ought to do what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, it, right. You don't and, share it to instill uh, jealousy, but just to encourage other people to educate themselves and do the work. And, and not only that, here, I'll tell you what, um, and you guys know this, uh, you know, it is awesome. You want to go hunt a cool place. You want to take a young person out somewhere that they just literally going to remember the hunt mm-hmm. the rest of their life. Take them to a, a place that's been managed where there's mature whitetails running around, lots of does running around. And, man, when you sit in there and, you know, that frost is melting off and there's bucks grunting and there's bucks chasing does and you've got a great buck-to-doe ratio and there's lots of game, man, you talk about nothing else get kids excited and involved take them to a place where they can experience it like that Mm -hmm. um and to me that's just i mean it doesn't get any better when i was a kid hunting if i saw a deer if i saw one it was a good hunt i i would i didn't hear a deer grunt until i was you know 20 um you know i just didn't have those quality places to hunt you know i hunted a lot of government and man just a, a I take my son now. I'm like, man, he's going to be spoiled rot. Uh, <laughs> you know, if, if if we don't see deer, uh, if we don't see a dozen deer, he's all upset. I'm like, son, I used to set for a week straight, and if I saw a doe, if I got a crack at a doe, it was a uh, with a bow. You know, yeah. it was a, a great, it was a success. And, exactly. And man, just what a what an awesome opportunity we have to share. Um, and the reward we can share is, is building our properties up. And, and, man, it's just awesome. I'm excited about it. Oh, yeah. And and you, you brought up a great point, and that's introducing younger kids to an exciting um, style of hunting. If, you ha- if, you're, if you're blessed to be able to have that kind of um, population dynamic you know, in your deer herd on a property, and they're, and they're able to experience the rutting behavior, scraping behavior, chasing you know that's awesome they have to see live action they've got to be able to see things moving and grooving and just nature work in and of itself to really appreciate it and if you don't have that you you can take them squirrel hunting and see them see squirrels hopping from limb to limb and and doing (laughs) cutting on an acorn whatever it is you know they just need to experience that and have basically a high energy hunt rabbit hunting's great duck hunting can be good you quail hunted at him, right? Seeing birds flush. I thought he was not even going to mention quail, and I was going to start standing up, saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Here, you're missing one of the best ones." Uh, I, my my family's a bit, comes from a big group of quail hunters, and as you guys know, and I think they're trying to restore the quail population. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my uncles all had bird dogs. My grandpa had bird dogs. My dad had bird dogs, and you know, I fully know I would be a full fledged quail hunter. Um, if there would have, if there was quail around, yeah, yeah, um, there's no doubt about it. That's something I would be doing, and uh, something I feel like I would enjoy. So I hope you guys uh, 
I hope, hope, hope you're you hoping we can get a farm, get some quail, so you can come hunt them. That's what you're saying, right? <laughs> He's inviting himself already. <laughs> oh, I'll be man. there. Yeah, sounds great. I, I hope. I, same way, big bucks and uh, motivate people to do stuff. I think a healthy population of quail would do the same thing. Get people going. Boy, I'd like to do that on my own place. Yeah, so. I agree. I agree, guys. Well, Seth, we we really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your experiences and sharing what you're doing on your farm and how you've seen it change. I think you know a lot of people, like you said, sometimes are afraid of change, and knowing that you know if you if you do the right steps, the right techniques, and lay them out in the right way. I'm not advocating for you to to get a wildlife consultant on your place, but you know by doing by doing it right in the first place, you can see drastic mm-hmm. improvements to a farm. For sure, for sure. Yeah, and, you know, talking of Seth Harker, Land and Legacy team member, I don't think we've said that yet. Not yet. Um, not yet, but um, for those listeners, Seth is not just a, a guest on the on the podcast, but you're going to be seeing him around more and more, um, possibly in potential uh, future podcasts. And also, when we start filming some hunts, we're all going to be hunting together, and so you're going to get to see the, these farms that we just discussed, hopefully in upcoming um, videos and uh, upcoming hunts, and that's what I'm most excited about. You know, I think, Seth, you and I haven't really hunted together. We've been so busy. We hunted together during turkey season, but deer season hasn't, we haven't hunted together in two two falls, I think. Uh, hasn't it's been, been very, a couple falls. yeah, and yeah. so we're excited to get back and share a tree together and, uh, yeah. and get trace yeah. on some deer and i think it's it's going to be a very very awesome and exciting fall for for land and legacy as well it's just our friendship for sure i'm i'm smiling thinking about it i mean to tell you most people get the jitters you know a couple of days before those season opens i've had it for a week solid I, I am ready for september 15th i am ready to to be in a tree for sure heck well, yeah we're excited. We appreciate you coming on, Seth, and we will be talking soon, buddy. Okay. See you guys. See ya. Boom, shabam. There we go. Mr. Seth Harker. Um, that was awesome. I, I think, you know, a lot of times that whole podcast, this whole segment has been on something that happens a lot. You hear this comment a lot. It's like, well, yeah, I don't really have any deer on my place until – deer season rolls around or i don't have many deer on the place until summer and then they all leave and seth has three farms not adjoining farms they're kind of there's land in between different landowners but he sees that as well but he's managing the habitat based on past experience of okay well this farm actually holds deer year round i want to replicate this everywhere else what am i doing over here oh i'm managing the timber i'm planting food plots in the spring and the fall um, I'm doing prescribed fire. I'm doing all this, and that's where I get all my deer throughout the year. So I want to replicate that. He'll go to the 360 and say, okay, what is lacking here that's over on the 530? And that's been a way for him to be successful, as you heard us talk about stickers. Uh, I think, yeah, just stickers. I get a little confused because I shot sticker eight last year, and he <laughs> yeah. shot stickers um, a couple years ago, and then he shot a uh, et last year he he's just a great hunter um kills a lot of great deer every fall kills a lot of turkeys in the spring great manager and overall just a great person Absolutely. Um, and so we're very excited to have him part of land and legacy and you got anything else to add 
I was just going to say, as you guys are getting ready for season, keep these things in mind. Um, actually, there was a great article that uh, was in QDMA's magazine from a, actually one of our buddies, uh, Mark Turner, wrote. He wrote an article about uh, your observations and, and jotting those notes down so then that can kind of guide you and, and um, you know, let you know population dynamics, herd density, whatever. But take, take a, a notepad to the stand or something. Write down what you're seeing throughout the season. Go back and then let that guide you as you start to do work on your, on your, your habitat or during the off season. What are, you, what are you lacking? And if you don't know where to start, don't know where to begin, um, hopefully we can help you. And, and put together a plan for you. But do the work. You, you, you heard from Seth. You heard from us. It can work. It does work. And, and it is so rewarding. And it may not pay off. You may not go and do a bunch of work in the summer and it pay off in the, in the following yeah. hunting season. But it, it will pay off in the long run. We can assure you that. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, uh, we're getting ready to start filming some stuff. So... With that being said, head over to our website, www.landandlegacy.tv, and go ahead and subscribe there so when we do send out the first couple of videos, you're all ready and you can check it out. Uh, we think you guys will love it. It's going to be a lot of the same content that we talk about here on the podcast. So, boom, that's it. That's it. All right, we'll talk to you guys next week. We'll see ya. Thanks for listening to another episode of Land and Legacy's Hunting and Habitat Management Podcast. If you like what you hear, check us out at landlegacy.tv. You can submit a viewer question right there, and we're answering the podcast, or find us on Facebook and Instagram. Feels pretty good knowing that from the beginning of time, God has called us to be a caretaker, a gamekeeper, a manager of the land. So with that being said, don't you think we should do it all for the love of the land and the glory to God?